0: We're looking at the first chapter of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the commands of God, our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As an elder, must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be more hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me lead us in
1: a prayer as we begin. Some words from the prophet Hosea. He says, This let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that as we gather together and as we meet with you in your living word, we pray that not only will we acknowledge you, but we will press on to know you better. And we pray that for our good but ultimately for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I ask you uh, this morning as we begin, are you a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of a person? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Uh, Are you hopeful about the future or feeling rather hopeless? I must confess to you this morning that several weeks ago, uh, I had a real glass half empty uh, moment. It d- didn't last long, but it came at the end of a very busy week as I considered, uh, I was on a car journey at the time, I considered the economy, I considered the war in Ukraine, I considered the state of British politics, the pressures the NHS were under. The disappointment that I feel with the Church of England, the size of the British Armed Forces, I could go on. I just felt rather hopeless. And then much closer to home, I got thinking about the pressures on our finances. I was thinking about the challenges that our three teenagers are facing. The fact that we've lost three good friends from cancer in the past two years. I had one of those hopeless moments. And I imagine you've had those moments too. And yet, as we begin this summer series in Titus, we come across this phrase twice in the letter. It's there in chapter 1, verse 2, and it comes in chapter 3, verse 7. Have a look to chapter 1, verse 2. We read this phrase of having the hope Of eternal life, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Titus uh, is the name of the person that Paul is writing the letter to. We see that start of verse one. The date of the letter is probably fifty-five, sixty A.D. And Titus is a church planter in Crete. It's a personal letter therefore from the master Paul to his apprentice Titus. But but don't worry about us being overly nosy in the coming Sundays as it's intended, this letter, to be read by others. So if you turn over the page to the last verse of the letter, chapter 3, verse 15, we read there, he finishes off with this phrase, grace be with you all. So a letter in the first instance to a friend, but with the intention that it would be read by all both by others in the churches in Crete, but also further afield, and down through the ages, and us here this morning. And Titus, he too is battling hard times. We'll come on to it more next week, but Titus is facing a particular issue. It's a really vocal group within his church. Verses 10 to 16, we read of them in chapter 1, who are causing absolute havoc, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, quite literally, they were ruining households or families by what they were teaching. And it seems that they've polluted the wonderful news of the love of God offered through the, the death of his son Jesus for the sins of the world. And that they, they've replaced grace with, with a sort of fake, false religion. Uh, a mixture of sort of Jewish law keeping and who knows what else, uh, all for the sake of financial profits. Beware the preacher, the religious teacher, who speaks often about money. And as Paul writes to Titus, he's going to give some quite clear and specific instructions. But essentially, instructions to deal with this false teaching and this vocal group within the church, but essentially the overall theme of the letter is for Titus to establish a church that cherishes God's truth by teaching God's truth, for it's by God's truth the church will be transformed. A helpful way to to remember what Titus is all about. It's all about the T's. It's all about the T's. So Titus is about teaching the truth for transformation. It's all about the T's. But possibly, uh, as you're sitting here this morning, uh, you might be thinking that teaching the truth, well, it sounds all rather sort of cerebral and academic, uh, rather remote from what we're all experiencing in our lives day by day. But as we shall see, it's not. For it's through being taught the truth and transformed by the truth that you and I, we can experience the hope of eternal life. But as we begin, we need to be clear what eternal life is. So please can we just turn back to John's gospel. Uh, we're only going to do one cross-reference this morning. It's to page uh, 1085. And I just want us to notice these words of Jesus from John 17, verse 3. Page 1085 in the church Bibles, John 17, verse 3. It will be a verse familiar to many of us. We read these words, Jesus speaking. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is praying to the Father, and in this divine conversation overheard by the Apostle John, Jesus declares what eternal life is. It's knowing God, a, a, a relationship so fundamental to who we are as human beings that begins now and lasts for all eternity. Now this is eternal life, John 17 verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now to be known by somebody is deeply Significant In Bible terms, it's to have the most deepest, the most secure, the most intimate relationship with someone that is possible. In fact, it's the word that is used in Genesis 4 verse 1 of when Adam and Eve had sex with one another together. Sorry to use that word so early in the morning and without a health warning. Everyone's woken up at this point. Isn't that great? Welcome. Welcome. Uh, Adam and Eve, they they knew one another. Genesis 4 verse 1. And that is what Jesus declares eternal life to be. That you and I, through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, can know God. Known by God with all our faults, all our failings, and yet freely forgiven through his Son. And in this intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that gives us hope. The hope of eternal life. Yes, that totally transforms our future, life beyond the grave. But it also transforms our presence from being the hopeless to the hopeful Turn back with me to Titus and we've just got two headings this morning as we consider verses one to nine together. We're going to see the confidence that Titus is to know verses one to four and then the commission that Titus is to fulfill. So first the confidence that Titus is to know. Let me read from verse one again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which god who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and at his appointed season he brought his word to life to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of god our savior now titus and paul they knew each other uh, really quite well they'd worked together on various missions they traveled around together they did ministry uh, together. And yet Titus, it seems, still needs to be reminded of the authority with which Paul writes. Do you see how Paul describes himself there in verse 1? As a servant of God, so he's one who's humble enough to know that he's been bought, owned, and is now directed by God. He's got this humility, but one we read on in the first slide of the letter, who is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is therefore one who speaks with God's authority. If you're new to the things of the Christian faith or just visiting us here this morning, uh, the, the apostles, they were the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus plus Paul, who were this rather unique band of men who had received a personal call, commission, and authorization to be Christ's inspired messengers, whose teaching would be the foundation of of the church. Now, if you're a regular here at St Mary's, we've spent a lot of time with Paul uh, in recent weeks, as Philip mentioned, travelling through the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. So we mustn't let familiarity breed contempt. Paul is God's apostle. Therefore, the words we have recorded for us here are the words Jesus wants Paul to speak. As we read, we study, as we grapple, as we apply the words of Titus in coming Sundays. These are the words Jesus has for his bride, the church. These are his words for us in Basingstoke in 2023. And as we read on, the importance of these words could not be more important, couldn't be greater. Verse 1 again, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. The faith of God's people, that's what elect means, that funny word. That is God's chosen people. And the knowledge of the truth that they've received in the gospel. They are the divine means by which ordinary people like you and me can know God and experience eternal life. Faith, knowledge, hope. That they're words that relay a sort of uh, relational dynamic. They're the means by which God's people come into this close, secure relationship with him. And in the midst of false teaching and an anti-Christian culture, chapter 1, verse 12, Titus was to know that it's by faith in God and knowledge of the truth that God's people will remain hopeful as they are divinely transformed. Philip pointed it out, but did you notice, end of verse one, it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to transformation, to godliness. Titus is all about teaching the truth for transformation in God's people. And as this hope of eternal life, this prospect of transformed lives uh, as the truth of God works through our heads, into our hearts, and outwardly into our lives, It's given a threefold wonderful guarantee. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. We're given this threefold guarantee that this is what God is about. So first, God promised it before time. It's always been part of his eternal purpose for his people. Second, we read, the God who makes this promise does not lie. Sadly, we all lie. The, the, The Cretans were notorious liars, verse 12. But God, who makes this promise, does not lie. And third, the same trustworthy God, who made this promise, has at his appointed time brought his word to light through the preaching, verse 3, of the gospel. Do you see, we get the promise, we get the character, and we get the gospel of God. A threefold guarantee that God's people, you and I, here this morning, who trust in Jesus we might tomorrow experience lives being transformed with a sure and certain hope of eternal life. That is the confidence that Titus was to know. That is the confidence that we are to know. When a 17-year-old is learning to drive a car, it can be a nerve-wracking experience for both the child. And the instructor. And in our household uh, recently, we've learned the lesson that wing mirrors don't like being introduced to wheelie bins, (laughs) even at about 20 miles per hour. Uh, Anyway, a a much more pleasant way to learn to drive, we've come to this quite recently, is to pace a driving instructor (laughs) to sit in the car uh, with the 17 year old. Not only have they seen it all before, uh, but they've got those dual controls, uh, and they've got that knowledge of what will be examined in the test. You feel much safer, I think, learning to drive with a driving instructor. All the learner needs to do is trust the instructor. And so, Paul the Apostle, the instructor, writes to Titus, the learner, and declares to him and to us that God is utterly sufficient our faith, for our knowledge of the truth that leads to the hope of eternal life. Have confidence in him that through the preaching of his word, his word of truth, it can transform your life by his spirit. So you too, so we too can experience the hope of eternal life. Some words from uh, John Stott about these verses. We too although we're not apostles, should have the same vision and ambition, namely to cultivate in the people of God the faith which lays hold of God and of his Christ, the knowledge of the truth which issues in godliness, and the hope of eternal life which has been promised and guaranteed by God. Friends, many in churches this morning, all across the world, will be sitting there lacking in confidence. But Paul writes here to us this morning as we sit here, even though none of us know what tomorrow will bring, saying, look, we can have the hope of eternal life through the faith and the knowledge that God provides for us through his word. A word which is ministered to his people, by his people, but specifically through their leaders, which brings us on to our second heading. The commission, we see secondly, therefore, that Titus is to fulfill. And this is verses five to nine. Let me read verse five to us. Paul writes, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul's strategy uh, for the health of the church in a hostile culture and when faced with false teaching is to appoint godly leaders, get good leaders, appoint good elders who will shepherd the flock by feeding the flock as they build up the sheep and protect them from the wolves. John Stott writes in his commentary on 1 Timothy these words, the health of the church depends very largely on the quality, faithfulness, and teaching of its ordained ministers. So the elders that Titus uh, was to appoint would have been senior, or we could say experienced men, from within the congregation, I take it. Those are the people he would have known. And I suppose the clue to, to leadership in the church is in the name. They were to be elders rather than youngers. And it's from this word for, for elder that we get the word which you might also have used heard of presbyter uh, and which is then used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word for bishop. In fact, if you look at verse 7, that's the word that he's using there. He's using this word overseer rather than elder. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3, for example, we read of another office of leadership in the church. Uh, and these people are called deacons. So the New Testament has two categories of leader within the church. We have the elders or overseers or presbyters in this pool, and you have the deacons in this pool. And you need both for a healthy, functioning church. But here he's just looking at this group, the elders. And, and the problem with us is bishops within the Church of England sort of come out of this pot, but they're meant to be in that pot and it's when they come out of this pot, they become a bit of a pain. So let's put them, let's put them back in the pot. So that's two groups, elders, presbyters, de- uh, overseers, bishops, and the deacons. Now let's have a look, because this elder overseer, these people, they're not to be lone rangers. Do you see that in verse 5? Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town in Crete. And as we read in Acts 14, verse 23, this was the practice that Paul had adopted in the other churches, a plurality of eldership set apart to lead local churches. And this is another way, sadly, where the Church of England set up doesn't help us. You see, the Church of England has a setup, a model of an elder or a pastor, or as what some refer to as a priest, which is even more unhelpful. And this person does all the work. It's an unhealthy sort of clericalism. But healthy church leadership is always to be a plurality of elders who primarily serve the church as they lead the church through teaching the church the word of truth. As we read in Ephesians 4 verse 12, the pastor the teacher is to prepare God's people for works of service. Now, whilst it will take a variety of skills to to lead a church like it does for running a family, the chief business of the elder or the overseer, I hope we're going to see, as we read there in verse 9, is an ability to encourage others by sound doctrine, i.e. they need to be able to teach. Or just one column over, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So in contrast to the false teachers of verses 10 to 16 who are teaching incorrectly, these overseers' elders were to have an aptitude and gift to teach the faith. Godly leadership exercised through a ministry of the word. But, but church leadership, as we read on in verses 6, 7, and 8, is always far more than just being able to teach And sadly, the scandals within churches of recent years that some of us here are painfully aware of have painfully exposed this sort of giftedness which has trumped Christ-like, godly character. That is a complete disaster in the local church. And what he gives us in verses 6 to 8, he gives us various characteristics that are to be found in any sort of leadership profile that a church was to put together when looking and appointing elders. I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but I do think it touches on some key areas of Christian discipleship, which is relevant for us all, but is to be particularly exemplified in church leaders. We're going to get there in a moment, but twice, just notice with me, Verse 6 and 7, we read that the elder must be blameless. Now, fortunately for Rob, who's not here this morning, and fortunately for Colin and Rupert and the other church wardens, and the rest of us who aspire to be um, in leadership in the church, maybe as a home group leader, blameless doesn't mean perfect. What a relief. Paul was far from perfect. But blameless does not mean faultless, but rather it means unaccused. So so candidates for church leadership must be people of unquestioned integrity, or we could say above reproach, blameless. And the elder is to display that in three particular areas. We'll look at each in turn before we finish. So first in verse six, it's the family life, family life. Let me read verse six. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now here the emphasis is on the, church, on the potential Christian leader's faith being evident in the home, behind the front door. But you see, the Christian leader hes saying, he can't be one thing in public, but another thing in private, behind closed doors. There must be a consistency of life that declares how Jesus is Lord of all. So there's order within the home. Now, I don't think these verses disqualify a single man from being an elder. Jesus was single, so was Paul. That's not what he's meaning. I also don't think it means you you can't be an elder until your own children have sort of been confirmed or, or make it to the youth group seven weeks out of eight or they've made it, graduated to a home. However, the principle it is surely that, if, look, if you're seeking to lead the church, if you're seeking to be an elder within the church, which of course is the family of God, by teaching them word of God, so you'll first have been doing that consistently in your own home, which of course is no guarantee of success when it comes to parenting. A number of ministers, like a number of you here this morning, carry the great burden and sadness of having children who are currently not walking with the Lord, despite of your prayers, despite of your faithfulness in bringing them under the word of God. Well, keep praying for those children. And let's particularly pray for the children of our church leaders. It is a great tactic of the devil to attack clergy homes. So the elder must be blameless in their family life. Second, the elder is to be blameless in their private life. Look down to verse 7, I'll read that to us. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So whether it's sex or speech, alcohol or money, temper and emotions, there is to be a steadiness, faithfulness, a discipline, a control in the life of the aspiring church leader. You see, any candidate for Christian ministry should be the sort of person where their desires are firmly on the leash under the righteous control of the Lord Jesus. As some of you know, uh, we lived uh, for four years in southwest London. And often in uh, on Wimbledon Common, you'd see these professional dog walkers with six, seven, eight dogs uh, all being walked by this one dog walker all on sort of these retractable leads and things like this. It's all going pretty nutty. The chaos would ensue if the dog walker ever let go of one of the dog leads and it would be absolute carnage on Wimbledon Common. And I think that's the sense in which Paul is trying to say to Titus here. In the areas of sex and speech, alcohol and money, temper and emotions, we've got to ensure the Lord Jesus firmly has control. If those things are not under his control in our lives, then we're probably not yet ready for leadership within the church. So, the elders to be blameless in their private life, their family life, their private life. And then finally, we see in verse 8, in their public life. We read, Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In these verses, verses 7 and 8, Paul employs 11 terms five negative and six positive. All which in the Greek are a single word. And the leading thought, which applies to them all and sort of unites them together, occurs twice here in verse 8. The elder, the overseer, must be master of himself, or self controlled, or we could say disciplined. And you'll know if you've been around Christian things for any length of time that discipline is a fruit of the Spirit. So all those who aspire to leadership within the church must be giving visible evidence in their behavior that they are being they have been and are being regenerated by the holy spirit that their new birth has truly led to new life that their fallen passions are under control and that the ninefold fruit of the spirit has at least begun to appear and then ripen in their lives, there's so much detail here, we're going rather quickly over them, but just notice with me this word hospitality, which is there at the start of verse 8. There seems to be a sense in which the church leader must have a desire to welcome people into their homes, so entertaining both church members and visitors, giving oneself to other people, getting them to cross over the threshold. It seems to be significant for Christian leaders. I wonder what's going on there. Well, I think it is letting people in and enabling them to see how what you preach is what you practice. When you have someone in your home, possibly for food, you might have found this, it does change your relationship with them. To invite them in, to see behind the front door is significant. So we have family life, we have private life, and then we have public life. Areas of all of our discipleship that matter for us all, but particularly for church leaders. And as we look at these verses, whilst uh, we might not be rushing to put our hands up uh, to be the next church warden or to lead the church plant, wherever we're going to plant a church, are we going to ch- plant a church at some point? We'll plant a church probably, it's good to plant churches. Um, we read these things, we might think, that this isn't for me. I'm very happy to, to come to the prayer meeting and set up a standing order. This isn't for me. But actually, this is for all of us, no matter who we are, because this is no less than just living as Jesus lived. He was the one who is perfectly hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, upright, And holy, and therefore, as his people, no matter who we are here this morning, what does he ask of us? Be holy, as I am holy. We've almost finished, but uh, today is a very significant day because it's probably the last day of the Ashes Cricket Series. If anyone is checking the score as I'm speaking, I'm really cross with you. If if you miss the cricket in the days to come, can I recommend on Amazon Prime a very good series called The Test? It is a fly-on-the-wall documentary of the Australian team, and T and I watched some of it uh, this past week, and one of the episodes comes with this title, You Can't Be What You Can't See, and it follows a particular member of the Australian cricket team who, who came over from Pakistan when he was four and is a Muslim. He's playing today. And it follows another member of the team who is only the second indigenous Australian to play for the Australian cricket team. Uh, and the premise of this episode was to sort of broaden access to cricket uh, for men and women all across Australia from all different backgrounds. You can't be, they say, what you can't see. So let's, let's see these people. And friends, I think it's similar with church leadership. The church desperately needs leaders like the Lord Jesus Christ, whose lives we're able to see and emulate. And so we need to pray and prepare godly leaders whose belief and behaviour commend the gospel, for we can't be what we can't see. It was the famous 19th century Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, who said these words, my people's greatest need is my own personal godliness. The way to spike the guns of false teachers, the way to grow healthy churches, is by appointing, says Paul, godly leaders. So that's the start of Titus. We come back to him next week. God offers each one of us the hope of eternal life through the preaching of His Word. Therefore, appoint godly leaders. Let me lead us in a short prayer for the faith of God's elects and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Lord God in heaven, we thank and praise you afresh this morning for the faith that you've worked in to your people through your son Jesus. Thank you that it's through the knowledge of his truth that we can come to know you that we can experience the hope of eternal life, no matter what we're facing and no matter what tomorrow brings. Help us here at St. Mary's to be a healthy church that is led well by faithful men who will preach your word and live lives that commend Jesus to us. And we pray that for our good and for his glory. Amen.